Hi, I'm Christopher Ward, and this is Famous Lost Words, a deep dive into the interview archives, and joining me as always, my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Hey, Christopher. Hey, Tom. So between us, we've been part of hundreds of interviews over the years, and we have access to hundreds more, right? Oh, for sure. And some of the best interviews you've never heard, and some of the worst. Uh, We promise to only subject you to the best parts, unless, of course, the worst part of the interview is the part that made it most memorable. Mm. And we've got some great ones in store today. First up is a couple of very interesting interviews with Lou Graham, who at the time was the lead singer of Foreigner. So these two interviews were done probably within a month or two uh, apart from each other, and it really is interesting what changes in the minds of the rest of the guys from Foreigner when he starts having success. So we'll talk about that in a sec. Okay, I'm um, looking forward to it. You know, I, I get to hear these these interviews all the time, but it's not like I've been listening for like 30 years, although kind of off, off and on I have been every right. once in a while, especially when the interviews were being done. But But I'm going through these like now. A lot of these interviews I'm hearing absolutely for the first time, like yesterday, the day before yesterday or last week, and keeping a record and going, oh my God, that is great. Or, oh my God, who knew that so-and-so could be so boring, right? Because there's a lot of, <laughs> trust me, I'm listening to all the bad interviews so you don't have to. Yeah, there's but always some dozy moments. That's but, right. That's yeah. right. And, and, and it, always, it always has to do when you do, when you go really deep in an interview and in a conversation about an artist, about their music, and they just kind of, you know, at first it's interesting because you really want to hear what they have to say about their art. And then sometimes you're just going, oh my God, you are so up your own thoughts. But uh, sometimes it's the fault of the interviewer. I mean, I, I'll take the blame, the credit, however you want to put it, um, for just taking the wrong path in an interview. Yeah. You know, but, but particularly because it's, they're live, so you don't get the do-over. You, it's not like you can go back and edit the best bits. If it's live, it's live. That's right. And you're going to fall on your face sometimes. I remember yeah. I interviewed Peter Gabriel, and I was so looking for I was really excited to yes. do that interview. Yeah. And uh, he was so incredibly low-key, and I thought, God, I better like get him interested i better talk to something mm-hmm. talk to him about something that he was passionate about so we started talking about musical production and the development of the the you know the, the fairchild computer and all this stuff. and he was interested but oh my god it was boring <laughs> you know what you want to meet them on their own territory in terms of topics to talk about mm-hmm. and so you want to start by sounding smart and interested in something, and then you realize that they are way deeper into it than you are. And it is going to be a snooze fest if they keep talking about these things. Trying to sound smart is always <laughs> a mistake. Christopher, I do want to talk to you sometime about some of the worst interviews we've done. And I've uh, recently, I just recently finished reading your book called Is This Live? by Christopher Ward. And one great segment is about the worst interviews I've ever done. And some of those interviews <laughs> that you and your colleagues from much music talk about are some of my actual worst interviews as well. Ah. So we're going to talk about that on a future episode. We also have a great chat with John Mayer from 2006. Now, John is one of those fascinating characters in music. This guy has enormous talent. He can be incredibly charming and likable and smart and really talkative, but he can also be his own worst enemy. And uh, we've got a good conversation with him coming up. Okay, let's get to it. Tom, tell us about the Lou Graham interviews. Okay, this is from 1987. His first solo album, Ready or Not, is out. And we asked him how the band Foreigner reacted when he first talked about doing a solo project. I think when I first started mentioning it, 
uh, to them uh, a few years back. I, I don't think they took me very seriously. It was like, there goes Lou again, talking about a solo album. You know? uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, I think when I finally put the pieces together, um, they knew I was serious. I, I don't think they were really pleased. Um, I think they were a little concerned that it would be a, a, an inferior album and, and maybe uh, be detrimental to... Um, uh, foreigners' integrity, so to speak, because they they really had nothing uh, to to gauge success on, as far as me doing something on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was never able to really uh, uh, complete my song ideas within the band. Mick would always uh, kind of end up foreignerizing them to to fit with the other foreigner songs. So uh, this was kind of kind of uh, a left field, real shot uh, in the dark for me. And they were all a little concerned that uh, it might not turn out very well. You know, I think I think the success of it has a little caught them off guard a little bit. We had been rehearsing and uh, writing songs for the new Foreigner album, and I must, you know, being very candid about this, it's been a little uncomfortable. I, I have to say, my, my future with the band is a little bit up in the air right now because they, Foreigner would like to release an album uh, like early summer, and uh, that would be a real conflict should my album continue to um, be received as it has and and be really strong this summer, you couldn't exactly uh, release a Foreigner album on top of a Lou Graham album. It conflicts with touring. Uh, it would be such a saturation of, of, of my voice mm-hmm. on, on the air. And it just does, it doesn't make good artistic sense. It doesn't make good business sense. You would think that, that uh, my album should run its course, leave a little space, then release a Foreigner album. That would be the, the obvious way to do things. However, if if they want to release a foreigner album this summer, uh, they'll have to they'll have to do it with another singer, and that's 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 we're we're in the balance right mm-hmm. now. Oh boy! So you can see there's a lot of tension in the band. He doesn't even really know if he's still a member of the band at that point, right? Well, I have to say, I mean, their concern about that seems very reasonable because right. mounting a tour is a hugely expensive thing. Yes. And if he's kind of burnt the market out with a solo record, I mean, he is the voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no question that the, the band contributed to it, you know, but you know, overall, he's the sound of the band. Right. And if he has a solo record out around the same time, it could be confusing for audiences. But if he isn't artistically satisfied with what he's doing in Foreigner, and he's always at the beck and call of this taskmaster named Mick Jones, Mick Jones yeah. not to be confused with Mick Jones of The Clash. Mm-hmm. Um, if he's, you know, under his whip <laughs> and he's unhappy and he thinks he's got some ideas because he co-wrote some of those songs, right? Oh, he did Waiting for a Girl Like You that yes, co-wrote, and that's a spectacular and, song. And Jukebox Hero, I think, is his idea and, you know, all those great songs. And so if he feels like he needs to, to stretch out, then they've got to be understanding. So... Here we are, a few months later, the Lou Graham album is successful. And by the way, that first song, I think the first single was Midnight Blue. Yeah. What a great, great song. song. And a great performance by him. So, Quite a question for you. How is it that there were two interviews so close together? You know that what? never happened. Uh, yeah, I don't know. And they seem, because just based on the conversation, like these interviews aren't date stamped. So when I listen to them, I listen for clues as to when they're out. And uh-huh. I'm literally... On Google and Wikipedia going, okay, so this album came out then. And he's saying I recorded this three months ago. So I'm literally <laughs> right. doing math. So, so they don't come with date stamps. Oh. And, and the interviewer is there. So I know, well, that person worked at this station at this time. So I can, I can date stamp. <laughs> it. right. It's like carbon dating a stupid interview, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I know that these are, and it's two different interviewers. So they might have said, you know, Lou Graham's in town again tomorrow. Let's talk to him again. Yeah. Right? So here we are a few months later. 
The Lou Graham album is successful. He's empowered. He's feeling better about his position as a viable solo artist. So, Lou, how is the band feeling now? Apparently, Mick and, and, and the rest of the guys kind of um, had a little bit of time to think about the implications of of Foreigner with a new singer and, and came to their senses a little bit about uh, maybe keeping the band as it is intact and just uh, adjusting their thoughts to, to the fact that uh, I can have a solo career mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and that the two would enhance each other instead of being so maybe uh, overly concerned about uh, me uh, committing some sort of disloyalty to the band. Lou said that his imprint was definitely a part of the Foreigner sound. I do put a lot of myself into the foreigner music. It just has to uh, conform to... It comes to the, out vocally yeah. rather than songwriting. And, well, uh, a lot of my melodies are, are in the foreigner songs, but it's just kind of having a little, a little more input and a little freer of, of a hand, a little more respect for my opinion. That's where I've been running into problems. And uh, so it, it's a workable situation, but it's, it, it's not what I aspire to. Uh, indefinitely going head to head with him I mean uh, I mean I, I'm sure he has a little more respect for for what I'm capable of now and we kind of look at each other as equals mm-hmm. on all levels uh, but I don't hope to to come in and start intimidating him with with my ideas I just you know I think it's at this point the band's been together for 10 years he should have his way and just go with it I'll help him but um, when it comes to my project don't get in my way mm. Whoa, them's fighting words. Well, you know, I I think of him as one of the great rock vocalists Mm -hmm. of that era. Maybe he and Paul Rogers. Sure. Of, you know, Free and Bad Company. Sure. And The Firm. And, And, uh, you know, they were kind of like the twin poles of what, what came to be called disparagingly corporate rock. Yes. But looking back... There's some great songs. I mean, you listen to Foreigner, like songs like Urgent and um, Waiting for a Girl Like You yeah. and I Want to Know What Love Is. Yes. I mean, that's a, sure. that's a standard, that for, song. Let's go back to Urgent just for a sec. Yes. Is that the greatest uh, saxophone solo in rock history? Junior Walker. Junior Walker, mm. just shredding it. By the way, he'd never heard of Foreigner when he walked into that <laughs> studio, right? <laughs> he had that. no idea who they were. Um, but yes, I think that Foreigner is a much, much disparaged band, like you said, and I think they're totally underappreciated because those songs still sound good every once in a mm-hmm. while the synth sounds a little cheesy yeah like synth <laughs> tends to do well yeah but I mean, they had a, they had enough of a rock feel to them to lift those songs and i i, I agree with you They're and that's a tribute to mick jones the producer right not just songwriter band leader right so he's got to get his due here so let's continue the story so lou so lou graham went on to record another album with foreigner right then another solo album and then he left foreigner and he had one more big hit um, what was that called? Just, I think it was just between you and me. Right. And then he became a born again Christian. Got out of the business. Thought it was thought you know he'd kind of fallen victim to all the standard vices in rock and roll. Decided he was going to step back. He'd been raised, I think, a very devout Catholic with in a devout Catholic family. So he went back to that. So uh, you know, send your emails to me if I'm wrong about that. But I <laughs> but I know that he that it was a, a religious upbringing. They replaced him uh, in Forner. That didn't really work out. He then joined them again briefly but got sick with a brain tumor. Wow. It was uh, benign, but they replaced him again with a guy named Kelly Hansen. And I saw Kelly front Foreigner about three years ago. He's still the front man for Foreigner. Do you know of him at all? No. He's a really great rock and roll front man, ton of talent, great great, great voice. Even with all of those accolades that you just heaped upon Kelly, and I believe you, Yes. 
I, I am a purist. I don't want to see the band with a different singer. Well, there you go. Uh, Lou Graham, in the meantime, has been touring under the name Lou Graham, the original voice of Foreigner. Okay? <laughs> now, yeah. he hadn't appeared with Foreigner for about 20 years until, seriously, a few weeks ago. Lou wow. Graham joins Kelly Hansen and the rest of Foreigner on stage for three songs, and it was great. There's a lot of online back and forth. Well, it's a, you know, now we can see why Blue Graham's no longer in the band. The guy sucks, that kind of stuff. No. But I seriously thought he was great. He was very powerful. I, I thought Lou acquitted himself very well. He still sounds great. It was a big moment for me because I was a big Lou Graham fan to see right. him up there with uh, Mick Jones. Mick Jones introducing Lou very respectfully. Right. And there, the crowd was going crazy. So it was terrific. It was a great moment. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. And this is Famous Lost Words, a deep dive into the interview archives. Right now, an interview with John Mayer from 2006. Tom, you were there, right? I was there when we uh, interviewed John Mayer. Mm -hmm. And John Mayer is one of those fascinating guys because I call him a thoughtful guy, as in, not as in kind, but as in full of thought, full of ideas, full of words, and he loves talking about them. Uh, and yet, I find that really interesting and fascinating. Um, so... Part of the charm of the interview is him, is John being John, and part of it is the way he interacts with the two uh, DJs who are interviewing him live on a morning show. And this is Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis talking to John Mayer about touring with the John Mayer Trio. The Trio thing is a very raw thing, which I love and will want back. I don't need it at the moment, but I think after a year or two of what I have here, mm -hmm. I'm going to want to switch it up and go to the exact opposite again. So that's the great thing about music, is you can just keep addressing whatever your latest need is with music. So. Why is it taking so long for Continuum to be released? I can't wait till September 12th. Uh. Most of the world. We're so excited Thank about you. this. this is Why is it taking so long? Because uh, there was this new technology called making it good. It's yes. A new, it's yes, a new, I understand that. It's I called, understand. It's, yeah, it's called MIG technology. Uh -huh. uh, 3M developed it. <laughs> it was used on you the, could go on on the and on. space shuttle. Now, we're really excited about Continuum. It's Thank great. You. This is your first time that you've actually uh, put the producer's hat on, too. Well, the first time that I've officially done it. Not to, Certainly not to discredit any anyone who's produced a record of mine in the past. But... Um, this was me being sure that um, I knew what I was doing, mm -hmm. and and it's uh, it's the sound of it's kind of like the artist cut. It's like the director's okay. cut. Right. Yeah. This is like the that's artist's cut on, yeah. of an artist. You know. So he's touring with Cheryl Crow. You know. Well, that's tough. You guys John, talk to him like so my parents. <laughs> <laughs> we are. Did John. you know he's going out John, with her? John, you were born in 1977. You, I am your mother. Hi. Where you sync up the information I've told you separately on separate phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Cheryl Crow, what a great yeah. bill that is. Cheryl's great. Yeah. It's a great bill. Um, Do you share some songs together on stage? We, we better. I, yeah, I hope so. You know, yeah. we better. I mean, we, we will. And, and my saying yes and her saying yes to that question is like, we're like, oh, we have to because, sure. you know, there are nights that you just, you're done and you want to just sit and watch the other person play. There's a whole different mode when, you, when you're not done yet on stage. Like, when, you're, when you haven't finished your last note on stage, you're still not powered down. Mm. So, um, for me, if I go on first and then I'm going to go on with her later on, I can't fully come off because I know I'm going to have to perform again. But we're, we're, I feel like the fans deserve it, you know, for... 
Boy, I hope you come back to Toronto, the both yeah, of Yeah, I noticed there's yeah. no Toronto date on this leg. Not yet, leg. anyway. Yeah. Not on this leg. Okay. Mm-hmm. But there are so many legs on this tour, I can't even imagine. I noticed this leg wraps up two days before your birthday. Was it planned that way so you could have a it nice wasn't, quiet birthday? It wasn't. I don't have a nice quiet... Well, I don't know if it's a quiet birthday. It'll be nice. I'll be in Amsterdam for my birthday. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Wow. I don't know if you can hear a fist pump. Can you hear, <laughs> can you hear the air move? <laughs> Let's get down to the nitty-gritty very quickly, Go. John. Who are you dating? I am. Uh, do I sound like your mother again? I no no no. I I. That's a great question because I did. I do have a blue guitar, and uh, <laughs> it's a it's a Lake Placid blue. Ooh, boy. And, uh, I do have a blue guitar. There's a fork in the road there. Um, There's a fork in the road. That's good, and yeah. um, it's hard to keep a relationship while you're being John Marin on the road and doing stuff like that, right? Yeah, I mean, being on the being on the road. Um, I'm leading to the song "Daughters." You know that. No, I am. Down. I am. No, I, let's start I, with look, that song. Here's my thing: is like right. I just trying to. I'm just trying to uh, maintain a consistency in saying, <laughs> like, I have a blue guitar because. Then if I had said, like, nope, not dating anybody, nope, not dating anybody, and then I was, you would know I was because I'd say, don't want to talk about it, and that's cheesy. So why not establish an I'm not telling thing for overall, just a nice, like, not like Christmas time where I say, guess the present, one, oh, guess, <sighs> or, you know, it's like, you're going to get your present. It's gonna be- Obviously, okay. he's been asked this question before, I, Derek. Yeah. I don't think he wants to answer the I question. I think that, I think not, but this is a guy who didn't have a date for the prom, so I, you know... I, I swear to God, you're my parents. All you have to do is yeah. forget the name of the place you ate last night. You sat in your room and played guitar while the prom might happen. Last night. Okay, so you see, he gets so far up his own thoughts, he talks in these fascinating circles. I've never heard that expression before. <laughs> I made yeah. it up, buddy. Um, but I really like to hear him talk. You can actually hear me, the one laughing at the top of my lungs in the background. Uh, and we also had a couple of fans in the room who wanted to ask him a question. Let's hear what one of them had to ask John. You know, behind us, we've got Diana, who uh, won the chance to be here in the room, and her sister Jennifer. I know the show was great. Last, uh, oh, she's going. Did she, I was going to bring her over, over to here, my Diana. microphone. She's getting closer to John. Are you going to give her a knee horsey ride? Yeah. <laughs> do you have a question for John? Uh, I do. Go ahead. Um, I just want to know, in terms of your songwriting ability, what comes first? Is it the chords? Is it lyrics? Is it vocals? Is it writing? Um, it is. Uh, it's a. It's a little bit. Of, I've, I have two separate. Like I have separate columns in my brain for things. I have my lyric column, and then I have my music column. The music column, I can come up with a bunch of stuff all the time, but I just have to wait until I get a perfect match all the way across. So when I have a song musically on the guitar, and I go. Oh, that would be a perfect feel for this title and for these lyrics. And then you just have to, you have to come up with enough uh, factors that you you can like match the socks. It's like matching socks, but you have like nine or ten feet. (laughs) That's good. I understand that now. And then, then, yeah, thank you. Yeah. That's a good question, though. It is a great question. People ask that as I have. That happens a lot. It it happens with uh, actually sheer make-believe. You pretend you have a song. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, like you guys pretend you have a show. Right. Oh, yeah. For 20 years, 20 we've years. been pretending. <laughs> One big fake show. One big lie. Let me let me ask you this, too. Uh, picking up the guitar at what age? Um, up and down a few times at friends' houses. And, but that was 13 when I picked it up. And, and it clicked it. when? Like immediately? Oh, immediately. It did. Uh, That's when yeah. your dad gave you a Stevie Ray Vaughan tape, wasn't it? Uh, I wish my dad was that cool. My dad <laughs> gave me like a Lawrence Welk tape. Oh, okay. My, my, I had a neighbor. Who gave me a Steve Ray Vaughan tape? And, and I put it in blind taste test and went, "Whoa, where where is this coming from?" I, uh, you know, it's weird to get awards for stuff that comes naturally to you. I feel like if I ever do something that doesn't come naturally, but I love doing it so much that I apply myself, uh, I, I, you know what I mean? Then I would be like, "Wow, it's amazing." But 
to me, it's like congratulations on how your brain happens to be wired. It's like I happen. I'm only you match the, only, the right instrument with the right exactly. brain. Exactly. Yeah. The only thing, the only real talent for me in terms of the work I've done is like being smart enough to stick with the thing I'm good at. Like, mm. you know, it's like mm. that's what I have to do with it. Is that I went, oh, I'm I'm the best at this in my life. Let me do this. Mm-hmm. You know. But after that, it's all. Well, shouldn't we all do lucky. that? Yeah. Find, find something you're good at and make it your yeah, life's work. Your life I love it. Pretend it's really hard when it's mm. not. Yeah, that's right. Great stuff. And we have more with John Mayer coming up in just a sec. Plus, we're going to talk to an artist about what it's like working with her husband, who's also a famous songwriter. Don't forget, you can follow Famous Lost Words on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. You can download past episodes on the iHeartRadio app, and you can also find us on iTunes. Famous Lost Words is brought to you by Alarm Force. Managing your home is a lot of work, but securing it doesn't have to be. Let the professionals at Alarm Force take home security off your to-do list. With Alarm Force, you can rely on professional installation, dependable products, and industry-leading customer service. They provide protection for burglary, fire, and flood with a suite of smart home products like door locks, lighting, and thermostat, all controlled from anywhere in the world with the Alarm Force mobile app. No charge for installation with packages starting from only $29.99. Call 1-800-267-2001 or learn more at alarmforce.com. And Christopher, we pick up with our conversation with John Mayer from 2006 with Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis. One more question. I just matchups of, of people that you really respect. Did I not see you on stage with James Taylor at one point? I was. was. I, did, I was on the How Grammys. How thrilling was that for you? Huge. Huge. I mean, maybe that Grammys was the first time that... I really said to myself, all right, anything can happen now. Because that's sweet baby James. Yeah. <laughs> to my right. I mean, you meet these people, and um, I think people are famous not because of who they are, but because of what they've seen. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you've ever met, like, I'm not famous, I'm just, people have my records, and from that it becomes a little bit of, like, a peripheral kind of a fame. But people, when you go, wow, you were there, like, like it, it's almost like... It, there are people whose suitcases are stickered so heavily. Yeah. And that's what that that's what's famous is what you've done all all throughout your life. And people like James Taylor and Eric Clapton and all the guys and And they compliment you too. And that must be like, mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know how to take that compliment. Oh, I know how to take it. Yeah. You know how to take <laughs> it? It's awesome. Yeah. Straight up I know Was I've, your voice going like oh, I cannot believe that I'm standing right beside James Taylor? Like those are thrilling moments. The internal monologue says <laughs> And at this point, anything can happen to you. This is this is this is unlocking one end of the spectrum, and not not to be, you know, like a shoe droppy about it, but I mean, mm-hmm. anything can happen now. So you, you know, it's like it's funny karma. It's a it's a funny you know. It's like if you win the lottery, don't get on any airplanes because you now have proven that you are in the zone where anything can happen to you. Right. So odds don't apply to me anymore. In, a, in some way. Yeah. So I'm also the one who's going to get the strange, incurable disease that doctors don't know about until 20 years after I kick it. You know what I mean? Kind of. If you, you know kind what I'm of. saying. I, if you get everything you want, yes. which I have been very, very lucky to have pretty much a career exactly the way I want it, we don't last forever because we, it all evens out on the way out. You know what I mean? Okay. You know all what right. I'm saying? Yeah. That's what gravity is about. On my record, it's track four, and um, <laughs> and I you know, guess, he also has an interest in stand-up comedy. So if this music thing doesn't work out, maybe I you'll get your own so. show on the comedy I network. I think so. Well, if uh, if the stand-up comedy thing keeps going, this music thing will not work out. Because... <laughs> okay, <laughs> there you go, John mm. Mayer at his loosest. Of course, the only way. With yes, John. <laughs> yes. Of course, his looseness 
got him into a lot of trouble a few years later. He was very cocky and said some things that were even racial. Um, he was also telling stories out of the bedroom, calling Jessica nice. Simpson sexual napalm in a way that he meant as a compliment, but it just sounded really disrespectful towards women and towards his former partners. Anyway, I, I got to say, first of all, I, I never go to gossip websites or anything. Mm-hmm. So I don't even hear these things unless somebody makes a point of saying, did you hear what John Mayer said? Well, And I, I, I guess I think of him as a musician. He is a fantastic musician. I mean, Eric Clapton calls John Mayer a master right. guitar player. Yeah. Excuse me, is there higher praise? Wow. And, you know, I know that he's cocky because I've seen interviews mm-hmm. with him. Um, but it's, I mean, he can back it up for one thing. Sure in terms of just pure, raw talent. But the other side of it for me is that when you think about how he treats some of the people that came before, like artists that have been influential for him, like J.J. Cale, it is with reverence that he records mm-hmm. their material. It mm-hmm. is with respect. And that, to me, tells me all that I need. There's humility in this man expressed musically. Right. But sometimes when he makes these remarks... And he was making these remarks to Rolling Stone mm-hmm. and to Playboy, both really in-depth, smart pieces about him. Yeah. And they couldn't turn away from saying what he said because it was so strong and it was so... And it wasn't like they were trying to get him by publishing his remarks. He said these things, you know, knowingly, and and it really cost him. I actually think it cost him his pop stardom. Did he try now, to clean it up after? Yeah, and he, he apologized, and he was very humble, but he knew that yeah, he kind of gotten carried, got carried away. And, you know, maybe there was other factors involved. I'm not going to—I don't want to speculate any farther than to say maybe there were some, some other rock star factors that were involved in, in the comments that he made because, mm-hmm. you know, he was running his mouth, yeah. right? So, anyway, well, there is that thing, too, the value that's placed on outrage. And I think yeah. young artists sort of fall into that trap— of feeling like, well, if I say something that's just so out there and so risque and potentially offensive, um, that'll draw attention to me, mm-hmm. and that's what I want. Mm-hmm. I don't. Again, I don't know. I can't speculate, but so he was but forced. I just did. <laughs> he was forced to back away from the limelight, and you know he's been a totally capable, talented, working musician, as you said. Uh, but he's not not really been back in the spotlight since then. Uh, maybe that's for the best. Maybe he is who he is supposed to be now. Well, I think he's made three great records. Mm-hmm. And Born and Raised, one of, uh, from 2012, by the mm-hmm. way, one of my favorites, so is Paradise Valley. Right. On Paradise Valley, he did a duet with uh, Katy Perry called Who You Love. Who You Love. And uh, that, in my mind, is among the best songs John has ever done. Agreed. And her vocals on that are, like, I like Katy Perry, and, and I know there's, you know, probably some Katy Perry fans listening right now, and, you know, I like the power of her voice, and I appreciate the empowerment of many of her pop songs, but boy, oh boy, the vocal that she did on that song is maybe her best song. So tender, the delivery. Mm-hmm. Actually, what I do at home is I'll play that for people and make them guess who it is, and no one ever knows. Yeah. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Right now, we're going back to May of 2006 with Chantal Kreviazic, uh, one of our favorite singer-songwriter out of Winnipeg, uh, currently lives in Toronto and L.A., and does a lot of great songwriting for others. Christopher, you would know all about that. Um, 
So May of 2006, here she is talking to Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis about her work with others like Gwen Stefani and how it differs from working with her husband, Rain Maida, from Our Lady Peace. And the difference is pretty interesting. Tell me what you did for Gwen Stefani. Um, well, I wrote on the track um, Rich Girl. Yeah, what did you do for that one? Um, on that particular <laughs> Tell everybody what you did. Well, I mean, you know, it's a collaborative effort, but the very specific part that I wrote that I think it's hilarious because it was the first thing my son ever sang um, <laughs> was the na 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 now, you, That's a big achievement no, in the world of uh, planet Earth. It's an interesting piece of trivia. It is. But it's trivia. It's yeah. very trivial, yes. in fact. Yes. And, I, and that's what mm. I'm all about. Mm. <laughs> and you've been helping out Kelly Clarkson, Keeping Avril Lavigne, mm. all these people. Mm -hmm. A lot of contributions. And oh, then yeah. busy mother of two. Mm -hmm. How are mm -hmm. the kids and how old are they? Um, they are freaking adorable and I want to <laughs> eat them. I'm going to eat my young and they are one and two. One and two. One and, two. <laughs> and, the, and her husband produced ghost stories. Yes, and, and you and Rain wrote this entirely, did you? The two uh, of you? Most of it, yeah. yeah. Um, it was, it was uh, mostly us sitting down and coming up with sort of creative ways to, to write music together. And then all I can do... In, you know, they're they're all written very differently. But there's a few songs that I wrote alone. But this song, for instance, I kind of I wrote it mostly at the piano and then played it for Rain, and then he started to contribute. And then his contribution after that was letting me know that my my lyrics stunk until I finally got them right <laughs> on the fourth effort. So it's it was it was such a neat collaborative effort. How different is it to write with your husband than it is with someone else? Well, we're not polite, you know. Like yeah. with the other human beings, besides your your life partner, you 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 know you you dance around right. another individual's sensitivity and their ego, etc. And with your husband, you, you just tell each other that stinks and no, and you just say no, moving on. And, and that's probably I, I mean, a I'll good be thing. in the I'll be in the control in in the vocal booth, and I'll think I've just done something stellar, you know. <laughs> and I'll be like all over myself. I'll be like crying, and then I'll look out at him, and he's like on the phone or something, you know. <laughs> Or he'll be like, "Well, stop," and I'll say, "Well, was that one all right?" And he'll be like, "Yeah, no, I, I didn't tape that one. I didn't like it." Or and I'm just, you know, mortified. <laughs> but it's it's so different than then you go into the world of other people, not your family or life right. partner, and you have to be like nice about mm. stuff and say that was really cool. Can we try it a little more like this or that? And I have no idea why that rule doesn't apply with my husband. But <laughs> it does not. It doesn't. Oh, great stuff and great insight into the working relationship between a successful husband and wife songwriting team, both of whom are very successful on their own. We're going to have Chantal on an upcoming episode in a new interview talking about her more recent work, including writing the hook on one of the biggest worldwide hits of 2013 and also her Saturday Night Live appearance with Kendrick Lamar. This was interesting because she only got a few days, maybe even just a few hours of notice before she ended up performing on stage with Kendrick, and it was a vital part of the song, and it's a great story. So, great stories coming up, and we'll talk about them in an upcoming episode of Famous Lost Words. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. And also, don't forget that you can listen to past episodes of our show on the iHeartRadio app in Canada, the United States, States, Australia, and New Zealand. Tell your friends about the show so that we can keep creating more episodes. Let's talk now about the song Better Be Good To Me, one of Tina Turner's biggest songs of the 1980s. And a song written by, or co-written by, uh, a writer by the name of Holly Knight. And I went to her uh, recording studio in uh, Los Angeles uh, some years ago. 
And she, at that point, was on top of the world. She'd written uh, Love is a Battlefield. Wow. She'd been involved in Ragdoll, although apparently she only contributed the title. Oh. They had a different title. Yeah. The producer didn't like it, and she came in and gave them the right title and said, thank you. Well, but Ragdoll is part of the is part of the lyric too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, interesting, huh? It is. It is very interesting. And boy, she really has quite a resume. But when you talk to her, she's talking specifically about "Better Be Good to Me." Is that how it she, works? She is. Well, first of all, she had written other songs for Tina Turner. She wrote uh, uh, "The Best" mm-hmm. and "One of the Living." There's a bunch of things that she had done. Mm-hmm. And she, interestingly, she, uh, when I played in, in uh, would get together with other people to write songs. Sometimes for fun. We'll pick up an instrument that we don't play, and it, there's something about the freshness or the ignorance or whatever <laughs> gives you a kind of a cool approach. You know, like I'll get a keyboard player to play a, uh, a guitar, and that's exactly what she did to write that song. She's a classically trained piano player, great musician, but she's not a guitar player, mm-hmm. as she will tell you. And uh, you'll hear when she tells her story about writing the song. You'll notice also too that at one point she forgets the lyrics. <laughs> That she wrote. Now, I just got to warn people, I heard this clip just yesterday, and you really have to strain to hear her singing. Okay. So it might be a little bit buried in the mix, but it's worth listening to, so lean into your radio, lean into your, uh, your, your cell phone as you're listening to the podcast, and listen carefully to Holly Knight. Better Be Good To Me consists of two chords, the whole song. And the reason that you're not aware of it being two chords is because... It changes, you know, it starts out sort of like a talking part and then it goes into a chorus and the way it was produced just kept building and building instrumentally, which is really nice because when you start with a very simple song, you really can build it more. If you start with a song that's real complex, you can't put much on it because there's already so many parts going on, you know. But I had a title, Better Be Good To Me. Um, Someone that kind of liked me had sent me a note and it was something like, he said something in the letter about, you know, Please be be kind to me or whatever. Please be good to me. And so I walked into my channel. I said, "Let's write a song called like Better Be Good to Me. Like you better be good to me, or you not, you know." He said, "Oh, I like that." So we were just playing around, and it was just D to G. And it's great because neither one of us really play guitar, right? So that's why we limit ourselves, and it's good because then you get into melody. It was just like a prisoner. Of it's very low for me. all attitude. Oh yes, I am touched by the show of motion. Should I be fractured by your lack of devotion? Very snotty. Should I? Should I? And into the chorus, send chords. You better be good to me. Holly Knight and uh, talking about writing oh, Better Be Good to Me. Man, I love good that. Story, huh? Well, I love just the performance. And uh, if there's a way we can post that video, we need to tell people how they can see it. But you can tell that she's pretty proud of the song. And you can tell that she's 
sly about the way she wrote it and about the, the cockiness of how Tina was going to deliver these right, the uh, attitude these lyrics. thing. And you know, yeah. it's a real credit, it's a credit to the song, the songwriting, but it's also a credit to Tina, how she made that herself. Because you believe, when she says, you better be good to me, yeah. you believe that she's thinking of Ike and she's thinking of anyone else in her life who's thinking of huh. treating her badly. Like, yeah. it just felt like you know, to, to many people hearing this right now, it wouldn't have occurred to them that Tina did not write that song. So true. And you know what blew my mind? Small detail. Two chords. Yeah. Oh, I love the that. The verse is two chords, D to G. And then, and then she goes, well, then the chorus is the same chorus. I'm going, what? <laughs> but then I realized it was simple. She just went up the octave. And that's where all the power and the force of the song came from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love that. All right. Before we go, how about some cool song facts? Tom, that's what your Twitter account is called, I know. And it's a collection of yeah, kind of geeky, nerdy, obsessive, trivial, uh, unimportant. Powerful, groundbreaking, accurate facts about music. Thank you, Christopher, for that <laughs> terrible introduction. You know, well, I'm accurate most of the time. It's funny because a few years ago I tweeted about Alison Moyer. Remember her with Yaz course, or Yazoo, yeah. whatever you want to yeah. call them? Because I read an article in Rolling Stone about the work she did with Yaz. And so this is what I tweeted. I wrote... Yazoo singer Alison Moye didn't think of much of their hit song, Situation. She thought it was, quote, shoddy. Mm. <laughs> and within minutes, I got a tweet back from her saying, no, I didn't. That's all she said. <laughs> no, I didn't. So I had to correct it. And I kind of believe that she may have said that to Rolling Stone because I know, listen, I know these magazines sometimes don't print everything the truth, but I kind of I believe what they wrote right. in that case. Because of the way they wrote it, I just believed it. So she's uh, but, had to clean but, that up ever since. But she, but but she said no, I didn't. So on the record, I yeah. I had to go back and say that uh, you know if she says it, it, you know it could perhaps be true. So I corrected myself. <laughs> um, uh, but for the most part, my facts are groundbreaking, powerful, and accurate. So and there you obsessive go. Obsessive and nerdy. So today's cool sure. song facts are. Greg Allman, one of my favorite songs, Whipping Post, okay? Mm. When Greg Allman couldn't find a pencil and paper, he went downstairs, found some burnt matches, and wrote the lyrics to Whipping Post on an ironing board cover. So he gets what? up the next morning, burnt matches, and he's got Whipping Post written on an ironing board. Isn't that wow. the weirdest story you've ever heard? That now, is I, bizarre. I got that from Greg's autobiography, which is a great read. I read it a few years ago before uh, Greg passed away. Mm. And I wasn't a huge Allman Brothers fan, but after reading that book, I certainly became one and a big fan of his. Um, and he talks about everything in that book, by the way, from the Allman Brothers to the death of his brother, to his marriage to Cher, mm-hmm. uh, to the death of his brother, to the breakup of the band, to the death of his brother. You see where I'm getting at He's here? He's got he, some stories to tell. He really did have some stories to tell, and boy, oh boy, was he affected by the death of Dwayne Ullman. Yeah. Uh, another cool song fact. Bohemian Rhapsody took three weeks to record, and that was the most expensive song ever to that point. 180 overdubs, and it all started in Freddie Mercury's head. So there you go. So I believe you. That's the most expensive song to date? Yeah, at that point, yeah. I wonder what would have bypassed it. Maybe Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood? Yeah, maybe, maybe. And, of course, uh, you know, Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys was a very expensive song, and it took probably, I think, more than six, uh, six months to put together. Um, but anyway, so those are a couple of cool song facts. You can see me on Twitter. Follow me at at Cool Song Facts. I've got one more thing for you, Christopher. This is a standalone clip. It's only about two minutes long. 
to me, it's just so great because it captures um, what happens, the mayhem that happens backstage at a big concert. Oh, I haven't heard this. No, you have not. Now, when you hear this, I want you to confirm, by the way, whether or not this is Jeannie Becker talking to Rod Stewart. I think it's Jeannie. Okay. But I don't know 100%. So you're going to hear this for the first time, and it's just Jeannie or whoever it is trying to talk to Rod Stewart backstage at a concert. Listen, I want you to tell me how you stay in such great shape, Rod Stewart. Well, it's um, a question everybody asks me. I don't smoke, but it's got something to do with it. Go on, what else don't you do? Well, I don't drink that much, and I speak to my mother every week. Do you play any soccer or just watch? No, I only go in for indoor sports, I go to church on Sundays. Um, I wear underpants. Um, oh, I get the scene. What color? Oh, they're usually a chewing gum gray because we can't afford to launder them. Okay. How do you feel when you're out there uh, prancing around? I mean, what is it that the audience does for you? Enthusiasm. That is the key to rock and roll, It's enthusiasm. Once one's enthusiasm disappears, one should go home to bed. <laughs> Were you uptight about the concert the first night here in Toronto last night? I'm never uptight. No. No time in this world to be uptight. They were just the security, I think, perhaps were a little wee bit tough. Tonight was was marvellous. And what about tonight? What do you think about the, the second concert? Well, tonight was, was marvellous. It's, uh, it's a difficult equilibrium to strike because you don't want anybody to get hurt. And at the same time, you don't want anybody to be, you know, placed back in their chairs and told to behave themselves. The way you perform with your bed... Ba- oh, there's somebody under the table. Wild and crazy times. The way you perform with your uh, band, you're, you're so uh, liberal, you never upstage them, you're so confident about your own thing. Is that conscious? It's nice to hear somebody say that, really, because I'm very proud of them. For me, they're the best rock and roll band. The best. It shows. Well, it must have taken a long time to uh, handpick them. No, it didn't. It took about uh, more luck than judgment. Mr. Stewart, thanks so much. I just uh, thought I'd say thank you. You summed it up, the natural approach. <laughs> That's the approach you take. Ooh, who shot the president? <laughs> oh, oh, Oh my God! Oh, Wasn't fantastic. that great? Just, I love that. Just the mayhem backstage. Now, do you think that was Jeannie? I absolutely do think it's oh, Jeannie. Okay. You know the irony of this? When I interviewed Jeannie for my my book on the early much years, I asked her about you know when she sort of felt she was done and ready to move on to fashion television, and she said, "Oh, you know, you can only interview Rod Stewart so many times." Right. So that was like symbolic right. for her. Wow. Maybe that was that moment though, where she's just in the middle of it, and you can hear the fans and the women cheering and screaming and the bottle of uh, champagne being open. And I don't know if you noticed, I've heard the clip a few times, but I just noticed it now. At one point you hear Rod say, oh, it's all over my trousers. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I it's did hear that. It's just so funny. And it's, but it captures the mayhem backstage. Does it ever? And it captures, you can almost see all the groupies and, and uh, like trying to get at them. You can, you can just yeah. feel it. That's, I just love that clip so much. And it's honestly, it's a, it's from a, package of a whole bunch of interviews and it just says cut six Rod Stewart I'm going oh okay great great Rod Stewart interview here and it's 
two and a half minutes, and that's all it is. It's just that clip, and I loved it so much. All right, that does it for this week. Famous Lost Words is produced by Adam Karsh. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. Join us next time.